So back to Genesis. Um, We're in chapter 41, starting at verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dreams, I also saw seven ears of corn, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other ears sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the each wind. The thin ears of corn swallowed up the seven good ears. I told this to the magicians, but none could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears of corn are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless ears of corn scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man to put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephenath Pane, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. 
In each city he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Aseneth, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph, ne- Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt came to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the world. Thank you so much, Jules, for reading that. Uh, story for us. Such an enjoyable story, probably the most famous part of of the Joseph story. We're going to enjoy it this morning, but hopefully we're going to learn a number of things as well, because it's got much to teach us. So let's pray uh, once again to the Lord and ask for his help this morning. Our Father, we pray that as we learn about Joseph, you would teach us about Jesus this morning, uh, that you would teach us afresh that knowing him, or being known by him rather, is the most wonderful privilege in all the world. And we pray in his name. Amen. Don't worry, someone says to you. Um, There's there's no point worrying, is it? It doesn't doesn't achieve anything. And uh, we think, well, yeah, that's that's true. It, It doesn't achieve anything by worrying. But there's lots to worry about, isn't there? There's lots to worry about. We think, um, oh my goodness, am I gonna, how am I going to pay all those bills I've got to pay? Or, my boss is just so unreasonable. How on earth am I going to do everything this week that he's or she's told me that I need to do this week? Or we're um, just really concerned and worried about that uh, health test that's, that's going to come back to us. And of course, the, the biggest worry of all for, for many people is the kids. You know, we think, well, what's going to happen to them? What's this world going to be like that they're going to grow up in? And are they going to be okay in that world? And will they, will they be, be married in the future or not? Will they still be, or will they start trusting Jesus at some point in the future? The kids are like, are like a massive worry to all you parents out there. I know that. And there is so much that we cannot control, or at least not totally control. Some things uh, that can help us. I mean, if we've still got the, the bank of mum and dad, fantastic. That, that really helps, doesn't it? Or if we've got a, a mentor or, or a teacher who can sort of guide us uh, through these uh, trials. Or if we've got a stellar CV that we can fall back on, should we be made redundant? Or if we've got uh, consultants and, and doctors who are on our, on our case and looking after us, that, that can really help us. But what if we haven't got those things? 
What if we haven't got any of those things? What's the plan then? What if there's no bank of mum and dad? Uh, what if uh, our health, well, we're just stuck in the, in the NHS sort of waiting room with, with everyone else? Um, what if we haven't got those things? Well, we, we want a crystal ball, don't we? We want to be able to see into the future. That would really help. But we don't have one. We can't see. We can't see around the corner. We, we don't know what's coming. And the question is, how much does that mess with you? And how much would you give to be able to see what is around the corner? Well, Israel had the same kind of worries. They had those worries about their future and putting food on the table when they were in uh, Egypt during the time of the Exodus. Uh, they didn't know how they could do that. They were worrying about their kids' future. And it was the same when they were in exile in Babylon, in slavery there, and they were just concerned about the future. And Moses, who wrote Genesis, writes the story of Joseph. He retells this story, and particularly these two chapters, 40 and 41, to speak into these worries that they have about the future and to say to them, don't worry because God our Father holds all of the future in his hands. He's got all of the future in his hands. So just to catch us up on the story, Joseph's life so far, um, which we began in chapter 37, goes from bad to worse. It starts off pretty well. He's in his father's house, but his brothers sell him into slavery. Can you imagine your, your own family selling you into slavery? He ends up in Egypt in Potiphar's house, and that's, a, that's pretty bad, by the way, but it gets worse because he then ends up in Pharaoh's prison. And then chapter 39, um, as we looked at last time, uh, he, he ends up in, in Pharaoh's prison, and then his life takes a major uptick for the better. And so by the end of chapter 41, our passage today, he is there in Pharaoh's palace as the prime minister. And the question is, what does Joseph know as he's going through all of this stuff? What, what does he actually know? Does he know any of the details? No, I don't think he does know any of the details about his life. He doesn't know about this, this route that he's going to go down. What he does know is something of the big picture, because if you remember from chapter 37, he had these double dreams, these twin dreams, in which he, it was revealed to him by God that his brothers and his family would come one day and bow before him. But the, uh, that's the only thing that Joseph knows that's the only thing that he knows about his future, the thing that God has revealed to him. And we pick up the story in chapter 40 there, with Joseph in prison, and he's uh, joined by this cupbearer, uh, basically a, a butler, and a baker, um, who've been thrown into uh, prison. They are Pharaoh's butler and a baker, and they, have a, they both have a dream, again, double uh, dreams. And Joseph helps the butler and the baker with their dreams and interprets them for us. Or rather, verse 9, God interprets the dreams. Do not interpretations belong to God, says Joseph. Only God knows the future, of course. 
Well, uh, the butler has a, a rather pleasant dream, so the interpretation tells us he is going to have his head lifted up and be restored to his place in Pharaoh's palace. But, um, and, and Joseph says, when you, when you get out in three days' time, remember me. But the baker has a nightmare, and Joseph says, your head's going to be lifted up, clean off your shoulders. And three days later, Pharaoh holds her a birthday bash, and everything that Joseph had said was fulfilled and came true. But, verse 23, the chief cupbearer, the butler, did not remember Joseph. And he forgot Joseph. And that for Joseph meant two full further years in prison. See it there in chapter 41, verse 1. See, the butler forgot Joseph, but God remembered him. And so as we come into chapter 41, chapter 40 is really the backstory to everything. As we come into chapter 41, God sends two dreams to Pharaoh. Notice these dreams are all all twinned together. And Pharaoh dreams, first of all, about some cannibal cows and then about some cannibal corn. And as Pharaoh wakes up the following morning, his heart is troubled. God has put a sting into his heart and Pharaoh knows that he needs to find out what the dream was all about. And so he summons his magicians and he summons his wise men in an attempt to get them to interpret the dreams for him. And if you're Israel reading this later on, you're thinking, magicians, that reminds me of of Moses being before Pharaoh. You remember the magicians then, perhaps? And the wise men, that reminds me of Daniel chapter 4, when all of the wise men came before Nebuchadnezzar and they failed to interpret the dreams then. And they are reminded that mere humans are impotent to interpret or to know anything about the future. And then um, we we find that uh, the butler gets his memory back. And he gets a conscience at that, this point, and he summons, uh, and gets a conscience, and so Pharaoh summons Joseph. Pharaoh asks uh, Joseph to interpret his dreams, and he says, verse 16, I can't do it. I can't interpret your dreams, but I know somebody who can. God can. God will give Pharaoh the answer He desires. And God reveals the future to Pharaoh that that Egypt's future holds seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph says, verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And verse 28, see it there, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then on to verse 32, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has firmly been decided by God, and God will do it soon. And then the Pharaoh himself 
acknowledges that God is the one who controls and reveals the future, so verse 37, can, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the Spirit of God, says the Pharaoh, and verse 39, since God has made all this known to you. And so time and time again, Moses is trying to drive home the point to us. God is sovereign. God controls the future. And what we see here in particular is that God has revealed the future, and he has done so through his servant Joseph. Now, dreams and their interpretation are pretty rare in the Bible. So we we have Joseph here, um, and if we go on to Daniel, Daniel interprets dreams as well. And the only other main sort of place in the Bible where we have interpretation of dreams is at the time of the birth uh, of Jesus. But other than that, dreams are, are pretty rare in the Bible. There's one or two others, but there just aren't that many. Now, does God send dreams today? Well, yes, I, th- I think he does. I think sometimes God sends dreams to alarm us. Or he might send a, a dream to apply a particular part of the Bible to us. Or God sends dreams to awaken people to seek Jesus. I think this particularly happens in Muslim countries. There's lots of stories about this. People who are led to, to look uh, for, for Jesus because of a dream that they had had. And there may be even somebody here today who's here because God has given them a dream and told them they need to seek Jesus. Who knows? The question is, does God reveal new truth today? And the Bible has a definitive answer to this at the beginning of Hebrews that we're studying in the evenings at the moment. It says that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the the prophets at many times and in various ways, including through dreams. But in these last days, and we are living in the last days, as we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. In other words, that the Bible is progressive. It's got a progressive revelation going through it, and it progresses right up to Jesus. But beyond Jesus, there is no progression. There's no further place to go. And so in this book, we have everything that God wants us to know about the future and everything he's going to tell us about the future until Jesus returns. So God does send dreams today to alarm us, to apply his word, to awaken us, but there is no new revelation of the future. And so as we try to sort of gaze into our crystal balls into the future, there is much that is completely unknown to us and we cannot know about. We're not even sure if we're having refreshments at the end of the service. Is it going to be sunny? Is it going to to rain? We don't know what's going to be happening next month. Are we going to come out of lockdown or is this Indian variant uh, going to spread? May May it not do that. There is so much that is unknown to us. God knows we don't. And God has revealed some things in his word to us, but not all things. And that, of course, means that we need to have a a certain amount of humility about that. 
God does know the future. God does control the future. And sometimes, like here, God reveals uh, the future. But not always. So does that mean we ought to worry that we've still got plenty of things that we can worry about? Well, the question is, what has God revealed? What is it that we can know about the future? Well, chapters 37 to 41 is really a sort of rags-to-riches story. And Joseph goes on this meteoric uh, rise uh, from being in slavery in prison right the way through to being the prince of Egypt and the prime minister. He started off as a 17-year-old lad in his father's house, and then by the time he's 30 years of old, which is still uh, pretty young, he is the prime minister. 13 years it took him to get to this point. And what we need to see is that for Joseph, life didn't travel in a straight line. God led him on this circuitous journey through life, 13 years of humiliation. He didn't go straight from his father's house straight to be prime minister. There was 13 years of humiliation and suffering. He is long-suffering. Psalm 105 tells us that why that happened, that God was proving Joseph. He was training Joseph. He was testing Joseph through this time so that he would learn to trust. And how many of us uh, know that kind of thing in our our own experience. No, we've not suffered like Joseph suffered, but some things have been taken from our lives that we've been trusting in as our backup plan. Or they've been th- there's been a threat that they might be taken from us. And what's happened, of course, is it's driven us back to trust in the Lord, or at least should have done. And that was God's intention, of course. He always wants us to trust in Him and not any other backup plan. So Joseph's life takes this journey. It's kind of a tick shape, isn't it? He goes from his father's house. He goes down into um, Potiphar's house, and then he goes to prison before taking a dramatic meteoric rise to being in Pharaoh's palace. And we see that same pattern with our Lord Jesus Christ. He started off in his heavenly home, who comes down to the, the crib and then to the cross before being exalted up into heaven to wear the crown, and one day every knee will bow before him. But of course, he also went through this time of great humiliation, where he was being proven, where he was being perfected, not in the moral sense, but perfected for his mission in order to be who he was, the great Lord and Savior of all. And what we know about the future is not everything. God has revealed some things, and what he has revealed is that history has this great arc, this great story arc, that ends up with Jesus being crowned with glory and honor, and every knee in heaven and on earth bowing before him. And we we see that arc being revealed to us here in Genesis in the first book of the Bible. God has revealed the future, and the future that he has revealed is to raise up his long-suffering servant, Jesus. 
And so as we look at the world, it may feel as though everything is circuitous, but God is leading us to that destiny when every knee will bow. And so we don't need that crystal ball because everything we need to know is here, even in Genesis. But how does that help us? How does that help us every day when we're worrying about our our jobs or we're worrying about our our kids? Um, If God has revealed the future to raise up his long-suffering servant, Jesus, how does that help me? How does that help me with my worries in uh, my world? Well, just look at what God does through this man, Joseph. God blesses Joseph in order to be a blessing. So Pharaoh says, the Spirit of God is in you, Joseph. And he puts Joseph in charge of the whole of Egypt, verses 41 and 43. And then he gives Joseph an Egyptian wife and an Egyptian name. And as readers, we see the irony of this because we realize that it is God and not Joseph who who makes Joseph. And not Pharaoh, sorry, who makes Joseph. And, And Joseph recognizes this because he gives his kids not Egyptian names, but Hebrew names. See, God blesses Joseph so that he can bless and feed the world during this time of severe famine. And it was severe. Three times, we're told, verse 55, verse 56, verse 57, we are told that the famine was severe. And it was over the whole country. So Joseph had to open up all of the storehouses of Egypt. And all of the world came to Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Pharaoh says, verse 55, go to Joseph. Joseph is the go-to man. Go to him. And the Bible says to us, one greater than Joseph has come. And we need to go to Jesus. See, Jesus began his ministry aged 30. He was filled by the Spirit at his baptism, empowering him for that ministry. He was sold, enslaved, imprisoned, and worse. And then God raised him up three days later to become a source of life for the world. And as Jesus walked on this earth, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life, he said. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And he goes on and says, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. 
I am the bread of life, says Jesus. Joseph provides bread. Jesus is bread. And so if we need eternal life, if we need to be fed by God, if we need our souls to be fed, then I can, I can go to Jesus and find that. And you can go to Jesus and find that. And the whole world, anyone, can go to Jesus and find that, even today. God has revealed the future to raise up his long-suffering servant to feed the world. And what does this mean for us? It means that we don't need this uh, crystal ball. We just, we'd, we'd like it. I, I know we'd like it, but we don't need it because we've got the big picture. God's given us that. He's shown us this story arc and where it ends with every knee in heaven and on earth bowing before our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us eternal life which we have now if we're trusting Jesus. And he's given us a Father in heaven. We have the ultimate backup for our lives, whatever happens. We've got a Father. And this Father has us, and he has history in his hands. That's why Jesus says, don't worry. That's why he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. That's what the pagans run after. Your heavenly Father knows you need this stuff. Jesus says, focus on the primary things, the things of ultimate priority. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be given to you as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We do praise you that you have come to be the bread of life and you still are the bread of life for any who come and trust in you, trust in your death. We thank you that this is symbolized in the supper that we are going to share together soon, that you have come to meet the deepest need of our souls. And you know our many worries, the fact that we fret and fuss over many things, But thank you for teaching us afresh this morning that all of our lives, all of the details of our lives are in your sovereign and good hands, even though we don't know the ins and the outs. May that liberate us, though, to seek the thing of primary importance, to seek after your kingdom, and trust that you will provide what we need and when we need it. And we pray all this in your name and for your glory. Amen.